Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Hey everyone, I'm Ian DeBorha and welcome to Movies That Changed My Life a podcast where your favorite stars break down the films that made them who they are today. This week's guest is actor and host of the Blank Check podcast, Griffin Newman. Griffin and I talk about why it's so important to talk about the context around films you watch, the emotional power of Pixar films, the lack of zoom shots in The Wiz, and the movies that changed his life. Griffin, thank you so much for joining me today. Uh, I'm a big fan of your podcast, Blank Check. I guess I should say I'm a, I am a blankie. You can say that. that. Is the cur- yeah. <laughs> I am a blankie, um, big fan of it, also a big fan of The Tick, which you uh, star in, which we'll talk about in a little bit. But for those who haven't had the pleasure of listening to Blank Check with Griffin and David, and now I have that song stuck in my head, <laughs> uh, do, you, <laughs> do you mind talking about the podcast a little bit? Yeah, yeah. Thank you for all the kind words. It was very honored to be asked to do this show. Um, it, you know, it's like, it's funny, we... we I feel like internally every six months or so, David and I, my, my co-host David Sims, who's the film critic for The Atlantic, we kind of recalibrate and go like, so what is the show about? So mm-hmm. we started out doing this show that was essentially a bit. It was a goof that the two of us had with each other, which was what if you pretended that The Phantom Menace was like Jupiter ascending, right? That it was like <laughs> something that was supposed to spawn a franchise and it just never did and you have this weird one-off. The Phantom Menace was only ever discussed in relation to Star Wars, right? How disappointing it was or how much people tried to defend it and how it was in line with George's original vision or whatever. Right. Uh, and we thought it, like, it'd be funny to just talk about Phantom Menace as if there was no other context and we we thought we could do that indefinitely and we ran dry pretty quick and then did this silly thing where we one by one discovered oh my god the crazy guy did it he somehow made another movie and then would cover that episode two episode three for however many weeks but through the process of doing that for a year we started to realize the show was kind of about two things a how much it became about trying to figure out George Lucas, right? Like, what was this guy trying to do at any given moment? Why was he trying to do that? You know, trying to contextualize where he was in his career and how the the prequels in particular are like the ultimate blank check movies. They were self-financed independent films made by a billionaire who was able to essentially bankroll three entire film budgets based on the merchandise sales he had (laughs) pre-sold for those movies. It was like, it's a set of circumstances that will never, ever happen again. And to a lot of people, I think that's viewed as, well, that's the dream. Finally, you get all those execs off your back. You can do whatever you want. 
and in a lot of ways, it, you know, it it did him in, you know? <laughs> right. <laughs> but but that was sort of the second thing we realized the show was about was so much the sort of context of when these movies came out, where we were in mm-hmm. our lives when we saw them, you know, where all the people in the film were in their careers and all that sort of stuff. So what we end up morphing into was the show Blank Check. That is, we pick a director who achieved some level of blank check status to some degree. We've certainly gotten looser with the premise of time's gone on to sort of accommodate different filmmakers we think would be interesting to discuss because uh, if you limit it to George Lucas-level success, you're going to talk about the same 10 white guys that every movie <laughs> podcast end up talking about. Um, right. But we pick a director and we go through every one of their films one episode at a time chronologically and try to examine their career through that prism, the highs and lows of it and every else in it and i think one of the things we've realized in doing it is that we're something of a film criticism show we're something of a film history show we're something of just kind of a comedy hangout Mm -hmm. goof around show but the biggest thing i feel like it ends up being is just about the way that context informs movies Mm -hmm. one's relationship to movies are fundamentally shaped by the context in which they saw them it is funny how much we're formed by the first time you saw that film and how you saw it, the conditions you saw it. Right. One I was listening back to ahead of this was uh, your You've Got Mail episode. It was cool listening to your guests. We're talking about how their biggest memory of You Got Mail was hosting a viewing at basically what little shop around the corner like Correct. would have been in new york Bob, bobby finger and Lindsay weber who hosts the great who weekly podcast and bobby met his now husband at that event <laughs> right. so right. you're like all these things where you're like these are two people who love that movie independently became friends decide to put together this event to raise money for independent bookstores that also becomes how he meets the love of his life it's like the power of movies just coming off the screen yeah how often do you do episodes i know there's a patreon people can go to to get some bonus episodes so we do one episode a week it comes out sunday uh, at midnight and those are the main series episodes following directors so we're uh, doing elaine may right now for the month Mm -hmm. of april because we thought that was funny On Patreon, we do a second show called Blank Check Special Features, and uh, we do those as like commentary episodes. So they're more of a loose hangout feel uh, without guests, and we do a new episode there every 10 days. That's Blank Check with Griffin and David. Highly recommended. Let's go to the, uh, the movies that changed your life. So typically, we go in chronological order of release, but Griffin has specifically asked, all right, let's start with Toy Story, uh, the original version from 1995. Toy Story has a 8.3 out of 10 with 898,000 ratings on IMDb. Way too low. Way too low. It is directed by John Lasseter, written by John Lasseter, Pete Docter, Andrew Stanton, starring Tom Hanks, Tim Allen, Don Rickles, Jim Varney, Wallace Shawn, et cetera, et cetera. The list goes on. Uh, the first of obviously the iconic Toy Story Pixar franchise. But Griffin, talk to us about Toy Story. You know, I, I thought really long and hard about uh, what to pick for this podcast because I've now done far too many hours talking about movies. <laughs> on my own podcast and, and on other people's podcasts, I want to try to pick things that I felt like I hadn't already covered in depth. And so I, I did that for the other two choices, but Toy Story just kind of felt unavoidable. We would have received some angry tweets saying, how can you yeah. have Griffin on the show and not talk about Toy Story? Right, right. right. And it's one of these things <laughs> where, like, there there were a number of things I could have picked viewing it through certain prisms. But Toy Story came out when I was six years old. And I remember seeing the trailer before who knows what movie and saying, that's my movie. 
Like I called dibs on it. I was like, that's that's the movie I've been wanting to see this entire time. It felt like, oh, they knew this is the movie right. in my head that I didn't even realize I wanted to see most in the world. And and David Sims jokes with me like, well, the premise of Toy Story is weird. It's not like that's a thing that I've ever considered. And I was like, I considered it constantly. Right. I was very much a kid <laughs> who thought constantly that anytime I left the room, my toys were coming alive and they had their own personalities. Um, but from the moment I saw it the first time, I, w- I was just completely transfixed. I only saw it two times in theaters. And then mm-hmm. the VHS came out like a year later, back when, you know, that's how long you had to wait to be able to see movies in right. any secondary way. Um, and I, I watched it who knows how many times after that. But it was a movie that pretty much like after my first viewing, I it felt like I almost knew verbatim. And it just felt like the – A, it was, okay, here's this premise. That's this thing that I've thought about internally a lot, right? But B, it felt like as a kid, I could tell that there was a difference in how little this movie was talking down to me. You know, I was a big Disney fan as a kid, but I was very aware of the fact that Disney movies were children's movies. And A, I knew there's a difference to the way that the adults in this theater are laughing at the Toy Story jokes, right? And B, I could tell these jokes are just operating at a different level. And uh, there's a lot of stuff in Toy Story that I now watch that I find really funny that Mm -hmm. I did not understand were jokes at the time. Because I think the best comedy in Toy Story is them just playing stuff really straight. Like for me now watching it, the funniest scene in the movie is the first meeting scene that Woody has. Uh Right? (laughs) Where he's got his notes off like the magnet notepad. Right? Right. And he's, you know, the plastic corrosion awareness meeting, what to do if (laughs) you or part of you is swallowed. You know, all this sort of stuff i was just taking this at face value i was like yes of course that's what toys would talk about and to a kid that's all 100 percent earnest and the joke of course is getting the nuance of that correct right tom hanks's performance is so much of it the weird sort of like okay next up kind of energy to it right right he's like he's a little gas from holding these like meetings every right. week or whatever right right and so that stuff wasn't funny to me at the time but it did hit some weird emotional resonance that I think other kids' movies had not hit for me at the time, which was, you know, I, I a thing I contend a lot is that Toy Story might be kind of the first mainstream animated studio film, at least in America, where the characters talk like adults. Mm-hmm. Yes. You know, and, and there's something very conversational about it, but also just their concerns, the the patter, uh, their choice of words. You know, I mean, it was just like an all consuming thing for me, um, it, you know, even to a degree that my parents kind of exploited where it was like, well, I thought, you know, Mr. Potato Head was funny. So then my mom would go like, I'm going to take you to the museum to see a Picasso exhibit because, <laughs> you know, she could get me interested in painting because he says, right. look, I'm Picasso. Right, like it was right. like, you know, an activator for all these different things for me. But the biggest thing was uh, my parents bought me this book that was like a very, very dry academic coffee table book that i still have with this (laughs) lenticular cover that's called like toy story the art of the making of the movie or something like that and it was even more dry than a lot of those making of art books are today it was very technical and i think they bought it for me just because i was at some bookstore with them i threw a fit and they thought they were buying me some big picture book or something but i read this thing to myself almost every night before i went to sleep so it was a movie where when i was truly like six years old i was memorizing the names of who's the art director on this you know (laughs) 
know? Like yeah, all yeah. of the key crew people and understanding the way that film got made. And so much of that book is looking through all the concept art and doing the sort of thought experiment of like, man, how would that movie play differently if the character looked like this instead of that? You know, mm-hmm. there were for a long period of time, Buzz was supposed to be like five inches tall. One of the things in the movie was that Buzz was supposed to be tiny and Woody was supposed to be as tall as he is, right? Right. And then you wonder, is that movie better or is that movie worse, right? Woody was supposed to be a ventriloquist dummy and not a cowboy. He was supposed to be sort of more of like a hacky kind of like Borscht Belt comedian's uh, ventriloquist dummy. Does that change the thing or whatever, you know? and Makes uh, it a lot scarier, I'll tell you that. Right, right. A lot of things (laughs) make it a lot scarier. And uh, by the way, a lot of ideas that end up in Toy Stories 2, 3, and 4 were things that were originally conceived for the first one. So right. I always thinking like, oh, that's interesting. What if the plot had been that instead? Um, they landed there through a bunch of weird means. And, and the key story about Toy Story is that Jeffrey Katzenberg, who was in charge of De- uh, Disney animation at the time, later mm-hmm. goes on to do DreamWorks um, animation. Uh, he had been pushing so long and hard for uh, Disney to make an animated film that was... Uh, uh, darker, more adult, more cynical, right? He wanted right. something that was a little more like pop culture referential, a little more ironic, what have you. And he saw Toy Story as the opportunity to do that. And he kept on pushing them in development towards that. And then they do the story reels, which is essentially the last thing they do before they actually drop the flag and start animating. They take all the storyboards and they screen them back to back as sort of just like a flip book version of the movie with uh, animators doing the temp voices, not the final actors yet. And they screen it for Disney and it's like a catastrophe. It's it's (laughs) a disastrous screening. Right. I mean, it's just silent. And they had the movie had become so dark, so cynical, so snarky, so curdled that Disney was going to pull the plug. And Pixar is like, please just give us a weekend. Let's see if we can fix this. And they just don't sleep for a weekend. And they go like, let's put out of mind everything they told us to do. What's the exact movie that we want to make? And they come back. They screen that for the executives on Monday. And they go like, okay, you bought yourself like another week. You can keep working on the movie. And the film ends up getting made. But it is one of those films where you wonder if they had just been developing it on their own without interference in the first place would it have ended up being what it was did it need the interference of the katzenberg stuff that then they needed to overcompensate for that made them find this weird tone and this middle ground um it's just kind of this incredible object for me that i'll never stop being fascinated by was kind of my star wars you know i feel like the way a lot of people talk about that kind of turnkey movie that not only represented a new level of obsession uh, in movies, but also the hunger to learn more about how movies were made. I mean, it's a film well worth having that fascination with. I mean, those art books, they still make those today for people who are curious if they want to take a look at those now in case you can't find this original 17-inch <laughs> coffee table book. Yeah. Man, I mean, as much as I'd love to just keep going with you about Toy Story, uh, you have Toy Story in the Blank Check archive, right? Or we did it is... on Patreon, yeah. So we covered it as Patreon. one of our franchises for Patreon. We did the four okay, Toy so Story movies, yeah. Listeners, if you want to hear Griffin uh, keep going on and on about this, make sure you go back and yeah. sign up for the Patreon listen to that. Hours of uh, that. yeah. But let's go on to your second movie, yeah. which is 1978's The Wiz. This was directed by Sidney Lumet, uh, based off the story by L. Frank Baum and the book of the musical William F. Brown. Uh, the screenplay is by Joel Schumacher, Starring Diana Ross, Michael Jackson, Nipsey Russell, 
uh, and Ted Ross. And this is basically an adaptation of The Wizard of Oz kind of through the lens of the African-American experience. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Talk to you about the Wiz. Uh, I mean, what do I need to say? What an obvious choice, right? Uh, (laughs) No, even just you listing all the elements of people involved and you're leaving off like, you know, Rob Cohen is the producer on the movie who goes on to direct The Fast and the Furious and Triple X, right? You have Richard Pryor and Lena Horne. You know, there's so many odd things at play in this movie. Um, I was chronologically trying to remember or, or rather figure out if I had seen this before or after Toy Story. And they were probably around the same time, even though mm-hmm. chronologically, obviously, this film was made uh, decades earlier. Um, right. But uh, I grew up with a very I was the first child and my mother was very overprotective, uh, especially when it came to what I was watching. And so mm-hmm. I grew up with this very odd kind of disconnect where I was not allowed to watch the things that most of my uh, friends were watching, right? Mm-hmm. Like, as a 90s kid, I was very disconnected from most of 90s pop culture because my mom thought that X-Men and Ninja Turtles and Power Rangers were too violent, and she thought right. that Ren and Stimpy was too <laughs> sarcastic, right? She was probably right about the Ren and Stimpy one, yes. <laughs> now, <laughs> looking here, back in retrospect. Totally, totally. But Disney <laughs> Channel was one of those channels that I was just allowed to watch like without stipulation because I was like, I don't know, it's Disney. And sure. Disney Channel at that point in time was still, it was a pay cable channel it was like hbo uh they didn't have that much original programming and they didn't have that much disney stuff on it that's the other weird thing is that like the big disney stuff was still they were licensing it out to bigger channels or putting it on abc or or making the special event of taking it out of the vault or whatever so disney commercials right so disney had these live action weird kid show adaptations of like winnie the pooh and dumbo (laughs) And Alice in Wonderland <laughs> that you'll sometimes see clips from that are nightmarish where they're like yeah, people in costumes. Yeah, Alice in Wonderland is, is scary. That one, horrifying. I have memories of that. Yeah. Horrifying. <laughs> so I watched those like Pooh Corner and Dumbo Circus and Alice's uh, Adventures in Wonderland. But I also watched the weird rotation of movies that the Disney Channel played. And they were movies that I think my mom would not have let me watch if they were not on the Disney Channel. And they were also just odd films where you're just like, I guess this was just cheap for the Disney Channel to get. So I remember watching (laughs) Short Circuit 2 so many times. I don't know if I've ever seen Short Circuit 1 in its entirety, you know? But a lot of things like that I watched like so many times. And, And the biggest one for me was The Wiz. The Wiz was just weirdly in that Disney Channel rotation in the early mid 90s. And I watched it so many times and I was terrified of it. It it really it creeped it, me out, you know? It's it's 
it's funny that you're saying this because I was wondering if that's what you're going to get to because my memory of watching The Wiz was also only on TV. Yeah. I can't remember if it was the Disney Channel, but I remember watching like little bits and pieces yes. of it on TV yes. and being scared and turning it off. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> now, I was a very scared child. I was certainly a child who was predisposed to shut something off and run out of the room or whatever. But right. I was kind of just constantly drawn back to The Wiz, you know? Maybe mm -hmm. I would tap out, but I every time it was on, I'd watch at least a piece of it, if not the whole thing. And there were so many scenes, the subway sequence where they're uh, – this is such a weird New York yeah, specific that I, I doesn't even I don't exist know anymore. If, well, I don't even know what those things are. They're like stretchy robots. Right. It was this right. thing that used to happen. Like, I'm, I'm like a, a lifelong born and raised New Yorker. And this was very right. much a big thing in New York for a while, even through to the 90s, where there was a certain type of like street vendor who would sell paper puppets on invisible strings so it looked like they were dancing on their own. And I would convince my dad to buy one for me, get it home, and it wouldn't work. You couldn't right. figure out how to do it. It was essentially like a scam. And The Wiz has this sequence in which there's one of those salesmen in the subway station, and then the springy puppets get larger and larger and larger and start chasing our heroes. It was a nightmare to me. Like, it just scared me so thoroughly. The, the <laughs> lion in this, played by Ted Ross, his introduction is that he is inside one of the lion statues at the main New York Public Library. And the implications of that freaked me out. How long has he been trapped in there? You know, <laughs> has he just been stuck inside a statue for so long? But there's also just this innate sadness and loneliness to that movie that I think is what really kind of uh, spoke to me. It comes out mm -hmm. the year after Star Wars and costs significantly more than Star more Wars costs. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's like this humongous movie. It's one of the only movies, if not the only movie, that Motown produced themselves. Yeah. It was sort of supposed to be- Like this... Motown Records, for those right. who aren't aware, like the Motown Records. The right. Right. And it was supposed to be a transitional moment for them. It's Diana Ross, like, kind of really, like, I mean, Lady Sings the Blues had happened. That's her mm -hmm. big film debut. I think it had already happened at that point, yeah. right? Yeah. And she gets the Oscar nomination, and she's sort of in that zone that someone like Lady Gaga's in now, where it's like, is she going to be a movie star, or is she going to be like Janet Jackson? Is she going to do, right. like, three movies over 30 years? Or is this going right. to be a real thing she keeps at? <laughs> it's still, like, kind of the only movie Michael Jackson was ever in not playing himself, Right. You know, or some variation thereof. There is, there is. Oh, Captain Neo, he is technically a variation. Right, that's what himself, I'm saying. Right? Like everything right. else he did, acting wise, he's either literally playing Michael Jackson or he's playing some facet of the Michael Jackson persona, you know? And then you have Ted mm -hmm. Ross, who's the one actor from the Broadway production who reprises his role. Sidney Lumet, who's coming off an incredible <laughs> run in the 70s, right? I mean, has been working <laughs> since the 50s, but right. but has now made several of his best movies within this decade. Murder on the Orient Express, Dog Day Afternoon, Serpico, Network, right? Network. Right, he's right. on this incredible run, and but is a guy who's known for this sort of gritty New York uh, versimilitude, right? He's not right. a guy who works in a very stylized vein. No fancy style, tell the story the cleanest way the story wants to be told. Mm -hmm. And The Wiz is just the only time he makes a musical, the only time he makes a fantasy film, the only time he makes a movie that has like special effects and makeup and costumes. And they hire him because they're like, well, at its heart, The Wiz is a New York story. It's a New York movie. <laughs> right. Now, they should have probably hired a black filmmaker, right? They should have hired a black right. writer, black producer. That's what should have been done. Uh, the film industry is incredibly racist and even more so uh, 50 years ago, right? Right. Um, but I get really fascinated by why does this movie work for me? Because 
A, I'm not its intended audience, right? B, right. this movie was not liked. It was viewed as a bomb when it came out. You know, Lumet even kind of views it as like, that was a mistake. I shouldn't have made that. But I'm so sort of drawn in by it. And the other thing is, there's like half of the movie I cannot even begin to defend. There are parts of this film I find so deeply boring that it is rare <laughs> that I actually watch the thing in full, right? Very often I will fast forward through large sections of it. It is sure. a movie that I think is so wildly misshapen and imperfect. Like you have Diana Ross and you have Michael Jackson, two of the biggest pop yes. stars of the era, and half of their dance sequences are shot from 50 feet oh, away. I'm going to get into this. I'm going to get yeah, into yeah. this. Yes, yeah. right, because that's the thing. Like every decision in it is is so perplexing but i've never been someone who is very fascinated by movies like uh the room or bird demic or things right. like that where the <laughs> joke is well just look it's bad it's not good right? right this is someone who doesn't know how to make movies and they don't have enough money and people are right. unqualified and untrained and the thing's just a mess i'm fascinated by things like the whiz where i'm like this is very high level people in every position right Right. At a very high budget level, a major priority for the studio. And they're clearly going for something and trying to figure out what is it they were trying to do? Why is it that didn't work? And why is that still compelling to me in the parts where it does? So part of the breakthrough for me, the thing that that kind of changed me with this movie is the ability to really defend a movie that you don't even entirely like. Right. <laughs> <laughs> that the idea of, you know, there are perfect movies that are perhaps less interesting than in perfect movies that have some weird power at their center. You right. know, to not be right. binary about it's a thumbs up, thumbs down. Because right. I would bring my DVD over to people and go, can I just show you three scenes? You know, I would like treat The Wiz like my mixtape. I was like, I just want you to look at this one scene and try to figure out what's going on here. And uh, when I, I very briefly went to film school, dropped out after like a semester to try to act and, and do comedy and everything. Um, but when I was there at this point, I'm like years into my whiz obsession. Right. Where I've like, right. you know, listen to the soundtrack regularly, still watch this movie all the time. I'm constantly vouching for it, trying to convince other people of the weird merits in pockets. And um, there was assignment for one of my first classes. Professor was this great guy named Gary Mayers. We said, I want you to pick a movie, and for three weeks in a row, you're going to have to write, like, a three-page paper. And the first mm -hmm. week, just pick one scene from this movie. You're going to have to do the same scene for three weeks in a row, one scene due, just analyzing the uh, cinematography. Mm -hmm. And the next week, just analyze the editing, and the following week, just analyze the use of sound, right? And mm -hmm. he said, don't pick a movie to try to impress me. Don't pick something pretentious. <laughs> Don't pick 2001 or... Right, right. Like, right. the thing that everyone does, pick a thing that you know really well that you can speak to really eloquently. And I remember him saying to me, do you know what you're going to pick? And I said, I'm going to pick The Wiz. And he said, well, don't, don't go too far in the opposite direction. <laughs> like, don't pick a movie that you're trying your hardest to not impress me, right? And I said, right. no, I really, like, I'm fascinated by this movie, and I think I can mount some kind of defense of it. And he went, well, I just want you to know I hate that movie. I think it's terrible. Good luck. And so right. I spent these three weeks trying to write this paper, trying to crystallize what it was, and I picked the, the Ease on Down the Road sequence, which is the mm -hmm. one you were alluding to. It's right. the big song, right? It's the right. big song of the Broadway musical, which the Broadway musical is a lot more just kind of like, uh, here is a buoyant, soulful adaptation of the whiz viewed through the african-american diaspora right 
And yep. then the, the, Lumet Wiz is this turgid, slow, completely haunted, lonely, barren. It's got like the biggest sets I have ever seen. And so often it is these static wide shots that feel like they were shot from city blocks away with no crazy editing, with no camera movements, with none of the things associated with like the classic Hollywood musical, which had pretty right. much died by the 70s, right? But right. but this is like this death rattle of people trying to bring that back. Well, here's the biggest modern Broadway musical in a while. What I contend is what Sidney Lumet was trying to do, although, you know, I've never gotten any sort of confirmation on this. I think that movie is about how uh, African-Americans have dominated American music, right? And it has been a byproduct of a sense of alienation and otherness forced upon them by the culture. And so The Wiz is this movie about characters who are fundamentally like lost and broken and lonely and sad, stranded in the middle of humongous sets, trying their best to sing and dance and make people happy. And the camera is like indifferent to it. It's doing nothing to help sell the musical numbers for them. Now, this right. is insane. Maybe I'm totally off base here. I wrote three papers on this and my professor went, I got to admit, you, you at least – developed an argument here more sure. than what i thought but i think it was a movie that changed me not only because of what a weird impact it had on me both as a small child and as a teenager in these areas of watching it over and over again but also because it was a movie that really forced me to sort of develop different critical facilities right right of like which really... has led you to your podcast right like why does this work for me i can never argue this movie is inherently good and i'm never going to argue that it empirically works but i'm going right. to argue there is value to this bad object which is the term james seamus said to me when i told him i was a big fan of the hulk he went oh you're one of these guys who's obsessed with the bad object and i went yeah i guess i am you know the object that fundamentally doesn't work and i also want to say that in, in regards to you know blank check before you wrap on the whiz that even when you guys talk about movies that are quote-unquote bad objects or not necessarily great films you're never teasing it like no. you will make jokes obviously and you know be sarcastic about points but everything is spoken from the analytical side or at least the historical side and you try and make sense of even more the the silly movies yeah um and, and, and that every movie pretty much has at least something good in it you know right. we, we never try to dismiss things because it's like even most bad movies have at least one performance where you're like well that actor got what the movie should have been, you know? Right. Or it right. looks great, you know, or the score right. is great or whatever it is. There's one good scene. Right. So Blankies who are listening, new fans of Blankies, we can thank The Wiz for yeah. opening Griffin's In eyes a lot of ways. Into, yeah. into, way, into ways to think about films. And I love that because that, you know, inspired you to make this and inspired you to do your podcast and all that sort of stuff. So ties up very nicely there. And that's a good lesson to have. Just look yeah. for the beauty in all films and everything. Yeah, try to find something. All right, so before we get to your last pick, I do want to talk to you a little bit about The Tick. Uh, I am such a huge fan of the comic and the show, and you star in it. So uh, do you want to talk about that just yeah. for a little bit? Yeah, it was a very, very surreal thing because I got that email for the audition. And, um, uh, you know, first I just see the subject heading on the email and it says, like, mm -hmm. you know, uh, audition for The Tick. And there had been rumblings for so long that there was maybe going to be a reboot. You know, I mean, Tick's right. legacy is always, unfortunately, being canceled 
prematurely, <laughs> in, right? In various different ways, right? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> just always sort of not getting to fully finish its story. Um, and I was such a big Warburton fan of, the, of that of that permutation. That I remember for years there being this, like, are they going to revive it? There were even the rumors for a little while that Amazon was going to do it, but it never felt super formalized. And so mm-hmm. that email was the first time I was getting confirmation, like, oh, wow, they're actually going to do it. They're going to do a new tick. Right. And it was simultaneously excitement and I don't know if this is a good idea. You know, this feels like pushing their luck. They did two different shows that were good what are the chances that there's going to be a third one that's good and then i opened up the email and saw oh it's for arthur uh which i was not expecting you know i i thought if i have an audition for the tick it's going to be to play the pizza guy or something you know it's not going to be to play the dude uh so then i i cracked open the script somewhat cynically because i was just like a what chance is it that i'm ever going to get this part right like this is a reach they're going to get someone who's been the star of a tv show to to do this part and and b what are the chances that this is going to be good the third time and then by the end of the the script by, by the end of reading those 30 pages i was so frustrated because i was like Ugh, it's 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 really really great and i'm yeah. now going to lose my mind if i don't get this part and i'm never going to get it you know that was my thought like i'm going to spend the rest of my life wondering what if i had gotten this because i i don't know if i've ever wanted something this badly um yeah i think what makes the tick unique is that ben who is in and of himself unique as being the only example of one creator retaining control of his property but rebooting it that many times. Doing the Amazon show was, I think, Ben's attempt to be like, well, now superhero media has gotten out of control. (laughs) And there's such a sense of what these movies look like and what these TV shows look like and both the network versions and the prestige streaming versions and all of this that he really wanted to to comment on all of that. I mean, if if you haven't watched it, and again, if you're unfamiliar with The Tick, I actually think the new show is a great way to get into it. It's out on Prime Video right now. I was a huge fan. Like Griffin said, uh, you don't have to know anything about The Tick to enjoy it. Just go watch it. I'm sure you will love it. But now let's go to your last pick, which is 2011's Margaret. It is written and directed by Kenneth Lonergan, starring Anna Paquin, Matt Damon, Mark Ruffalo, J. Smith Cameron, Jean Reno, Janine Berlin. Um, Allison Janney is in it, Karen Culkin, a whole a whole bunch of stars. I watched the extended edition. I'm assuming that's the version you want to discuss. But uh, for those who are unfamiliar, Margaret has a similar uh, uh, Snyder Cut aura to it where it had multiple cuts. But I think the extended version is the director's preferred one. So that's the one I watched. Well, yeah. So, I mean, that is part of I'd say that's the main reason why I okay. like okay. this movie is, is the whole weird birthing process yeah. of this film, right? Um, uh, Kenneth Lonergan's first movie was You Can Count On Me, which comes out in 2000, is the movie that sort of breaks Mark Ruffalo. He starts getting big studio jobs right Right. after that. And uh, that's Laura Linney's first Oscar nomination. And it was like a big critical hit, but it was an indie movie. But he's one of those guys who was in sort of a small scale blank check position after that, where because that movie broke out of its expectations, people were looking to see what's his next thing going to be. He is reeling from 9-11 and is like, I want to make something about how I feel in the wake of 9-11, what it feels like being a New Yorker in the wake of uh, 9-11 because he's a lifelong New Yorker. So he starts formulating this movie in like 2001. Mm -hmm. He finally comes up with this massive script. And I remember hearing because I was such a big fan of his, I would go to blogs and stuff to read about what he was doing. 
and no one could really explain what it was. <laughs> they were like, Anna Paquin's the lead. It's called Margaret, but Margaret's not the name of any character in it. It's sort of about 9-11, but it's not explicitly at all. But it was this odd formless thing, right? And it's like, oh, it's this super long script. At one point, it was like 400 pages, which listeners should know vaguely a page equals a minute right. in screen time. That's sort of right. the rule of thumb. So he's writing this like six-hour movie. People are scaling it down. He gets uh, Mark Ruffalo and Matthew Broderick and Matt Damon to come in supporting roles. So it feels like, oh, this is this big step up. The movie shot in 2006, and then it just never comes out. Right. I'm someone who's keeping my ear especially close to the ground on this right. movie. He's a niche figure, but the movie blogs I go to will once a year sort of go like, what happened to right. Margaret? Wasn't that supposed to be a movie? Wasn't that actually shot? So now like five years have passed and uh, I believe it is uh, uh, Fox mm -hmm. Searchlight announces, oh, it's it's just going to come out. It's just going to come out like the last uh, week of September right. or something, right? It's sort of like dumped without any... Um, fanfare. Fanfare, right, right. There wasn't even a trailer or poster until like two weeks before it was going to come out. It's released in very few theaters, and most critics kind of dismiss right. it. And I was like, oh, this is going to be such a bummer to watch. Because when you're really <laughs> invested in a filmmaker like Over that, years and years. Yeah, yeah. Seeing a bad movie of theirs feels like when you go to see your friend perform and they suck. Yeah. You know, when your friend's like, I've started <laughs> writing songs. You should come to the open house where I'm going to perform. Yeah. And they get up in five seconds and you're like, oh my God. I just feel so bad. Now I have to sit through the rest of this. Right. So I go see Margaret the Sunday it comes out at the Sunshine Theater in New York City. R.I.P. Like the last showing of the day. I'm seeing like an, a, a 10 p.m. showing on a Sunday night, right? Mm -hmm. There's maybe one other person in the theater. And I sit there and I go, when am I going to start thinking this is a mess, right? <laughs> and yeah. I sit there and for two and a half hours I go – I, I think this is one of the best movies I've ever seen. Like, not only is this not a calamity, but I, I think this is an incredibly important, seminal American work. And so I walk out of there and I go, like, am I just demented? Like, am I viewing this through some weird whiz prism, you know? Am I just so desperate to love this movie and defend it? Like, what's going on? So I go back and see it a second week. Uh, you know, it plays in theaters for, I think, a grand total of 10 days. Right. It does, like, the one contractually obligated week for the movie Right, to come with out. the studios and the theaters, right. right? And I watch the second time, and I'm like, no, I think this thing is kind of a masterpiece. I think it is. And I think a lot of the things that people are viewing as signs of sloppiness because of its difficult birthing process are intentional choices. Mm -hmm. And I certainly would love to see what his preferred version of the movie is, but I also think there's just enough inherent power to what he's doing here that even in a cut-down form, this is better than most movies I've ever seen. Right. So Margaret just kind of disappears, <clears throat> and it's one of the only moments where I seriously considered writing film criticism. I remember reaching out to friends of mine who worked at publications and was like, if I wrote like a 10-page piece on Margaret, would you ever run that? Because <laughs> I just felt like no one was defending this thing. And I wasn't even having some contrarian whiz take on like, you know, but I was like, I really think this thing needs to be reckoned with in some sort of way. I never wrote the full piece. And then a month or two later, there is this Twitter movement of people saying, 
hashtag save Margaret, right? Uh-huh. Not necessarily the critics who had reviewed it at first blush. The critics who would come around to it later uh, or perhaps weren't assigned to review it or reviewed it but now were thinking more favorably about it. And we're sort of saying, like, this is the best movie Fox Searchlight has this year, and they're not even putting it up for critics' consideration. They're not putting it up for awards. They're not putting it up for screeners, sending out screeners to anybody. Mm -hmm. We have to save Margaret. We have to convince Fox Searchlight to actually, like, try to get at least critics' awards things for this movie. So now this whole critical reevaluation starts, and a bunch of people start reclaiming Margaret. Uh, I really have to formulate my critical defense of this movie. I don't want to just say, I don't know, I just like it, right? I was so frustrated with the fact that everyone else was kind of writing it off, and it felt like, bizarrely, the opposite of what uh, we were talking about at the beginning of this episode uh, with Blank Check and everything, that people could not get past the context of the film's development and release, right? Right. That everyone was watching the movie only through the prism of, I'm looking for the areas in which this film looks like it was cut down. Right, you're the- coming, you're going in with the opposite effect right, right? You're this going, thing's been you're on a shelf for, for five right. years you're looking for failure you're looking for it to be out of date you're looking for what was it supposed to be instead rather than what it was the entire crux of the movie is kenneth lonergan's real wife playing the mother of a teenage girl who goes to like a private school and is told that she's kind of special and gifted and emotionally intelligent whatever and in the first act of the movie she is flirting with a bus driver played by mark ruffalo distracts him he runs a red light and hits an innocent bystander alice and janney in one of the best one scene performances in the history of movies wild just incredible stuff unbelievable yeah yeah and and kills this woman and she is shell-shocked traumatized by witnessing this death right she is the one holding this woman as she dies Mm -hmm. and alice and janney starts referring to anna paquin as her daughter thinks it's her daughter and when the cops come to take a statement she exchanges a glance with mark ruffalo and thinks we have a connection i should lie on his behalf right and then starts having a slow motion mental breakdown like the movie is essentially this girl starts becoming overcome with grief and the trauma of the event and tries to go back to the cops and change her story and they don't care it's it's you know it's one of many deaths like that that happen any given week in new york city and the case is closed and they don't want to reopen it Mm-hmm. And if she's caught up in the bureaucracy, not the way we usually see the government and the police force and whatever operating in these movies where there are these monolithic things, but they're just guys trying to get through their day. Right. And they don't care. And here's the 16-year-old girl who's trying to, like, whip up this whole thing. And it makes her reassess her relationship with her mother and her sexuality and boys, all these sorts of things. It just becomes this sort of coming-of-age movie, which I think is Lonergan's response to 9-11 of – you know, we, America, we were kind of the teenager of the world. We mm. were this very arrogant, precocious country that's like, look how much we know, right? We figured all of this out so early. We didn't need centuries upon centuries like you guys. We pretty much got it figured out in 200 years. And then 9 11 happens, and it's this kind of catastrophe that we're not really super accustomed to in the way that other societies that have you know, collapsed and rebuilt themselves multiple times have gone through, have that sort of greater sense of generational trauma. And much like a teenager experiencing real trauma for the first time, you think, well, this is the worst thing that has ever happened to anyone. Hmm. Why isn't everyone taking this as seriously as I am? I need to do something to get revenge. It was very much a movie that made me re-examine my relationship to the discourse. Mm -hmm. As movie fans, how often we are 
shaped by how movies are presented to us, you know? Is this thing being viewed as a trouble movie before it came out? Did it bomb? Did critics dislike it, you know? Mm -hmm. Did I see it in a theater where no one was there, you know? Mm -hmm. Like, all these things you bring to the table, and I think the most important thing, it was sort of a transformational moment for me of, like, being able to go to a theater and sort of hang up my baggage and put aside both the fact that I'm a big Lonergan fan and the fact that everyone is telling me and has been telling me for years that this movie is a mess and just try to engage with the thing on the screen that I'm watching. Right. Yeah. I mean, I I had a very similar experience. I had heard so much about this movie through various, you know, channels or whatever I'm reading on social media. And I finally watched it and I tried turning off like anything I'd heard about it. And my experience with it was like, I either love this movie or I hate this movie yeah. because there are there are so many conflicting things like the dialogue and how long it is and all these storylines. But I, I recommend folks give it a whirl. You can find both editions online on various streaming services. Yeah, HBO Max uh, has them both now, which I think has right. helped even more recently get people to watch the right. film. Yeah. I hate to do this because I could talk to you about all these movies for hours and hours. Uh, but I, we do have to come to our last question here. Okay. So you chose Toy Story, The Wiz... And uh, Margaret, do you see three a movies line? that weirdly add up to equal a lot of my personality? And there it is. Yeah. So, do you happen to have a through line as to why you think you selected these three films? I do think, you know, I have a, a, a good friend, Colin Beckett, um, who, as a party trick, would ask people what their favorite movies were, their three favorite movies, and then would try to identify what is the through line. What is the oh, thing okay. that you respond to, right? Yeah. And these weren't the three movies I gave him, but he offered the through line that I think applies to these three movies and applies to most movies I connect with. People begrudgingly learning that they are, in fact, only a very, very small part of a pretty humongous terrifying and largely indifferent world you know i think all three of these movies are sort of about um kind of innocents who get dropped uh, into uncomfortable surroundings and try to make it about themselves to some degree right their own suffering and then have to understand the perspective of other characters other people and ultimately come back around to this sort of weird messy you know, uh, unfinished ending of, I guess I just understand how irrelevant I am in the grand scheme of things, but I'm okay with that, you know? <laughs> and is that sort of like a life philosophy in your eyes at all? I do think so. I think especially in this era, uh, you know, with social media and everything, I find some sort of solace in movies where people are able to find some comfort in their understanding of their place not being able to change the world around them because that's maybe not really possible but being able to figure out just how to live as yourself in your little corner of the universe beautifully said about all three of these films people who haven't heard blank check you can tune in mondays wherever you listen to podcasts but how else can people keep up with you if they want to hear more about your thoughts on movies and, and pop culture, all that sort of stuff. The Tick, as you said, uh, not movie opinions, just me acting, <laughs> but still available on Amazon, a thing I'm very, very proud of and encourage people to watch. I also do this weird thing called the George Lucas Talk Show every Sunday night with a friend of mine, uh, Connor Ratliff, who I think is the funniest man in New York City. And uh, we did it as a live stage show for years and then mm-hmm. pivoted to doing it digitally in the pandemic. 
but it is what it sounds like. He plays George Lucas. <laughs> I play Watto, the alien from Phantom Menace, as his sort of sidekick announcer, and we interview real celebrities as themselves yep. uh, live. Uh, a lot of my movie opinions end up seeping into that. Um, but we've had weirdly overqualified guests, uh, people like Kevin Smith and Whoopi Goldberg. But yeah, that's every Sunday night at 8 p.m. Eastern time on Planet Scum dot live is where you can watch that griffin this was a ton of fun thank you so much for hanging out thank you thanks so much for listening be sure to head over to imdb.com slash podcasts for more content on griffin and to easily add the movies that changed his life to your imdb watch list 